and welcome back to Kind of Cute. And if you're new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Evan. I'm your host. And on Kind of Cute, we discuss articles from the cut and my general pop culture musings. Guys, I have to say I am so excited because this weekend I'm going to visit my little sister, Danny at law school. She goes to Wake Forest just to toot her horn for a second. She is going there on a full ride and she's killing it more than I ever killed law school a single day in my life. Um, she constantly is like getting the highest grade on these homework assignments. That's also a foreign concept to me. Like we didn't have homework. We just had like one final exam at the end of the semester, but I'm so proud of her and I'm so excited to go up to North Carolina. I've never been to Winston-Salem and just do like fall activities. We're going to a vineyard that has llamas, which I don't care how basic it is. That is a dream day for me. We're going to like this little farm, you know, very wildlife centered, a farm that has a hayride for the fall. Uh, I'm just, I cannot wait. It's going to be cold. I can whip out some stuff that I like thrifted and haven't had a chance to wear yet because of this god awful Florida weather. Actually, I can't. It's It's been very nice here, but you know, we don't really get the seasons and I'm just, I'm amped. Okay. On to some celebrity news. First up, I'm so sad to say that Angela Lansbury passed away. I mean, she was old. She was in her 90s, but she was just such like a major part of my childhood. Not only was she Mrs. Potts, she also um, Murder, She Wrote. My grandma loved Murder, She Wrote, and that was on constantly in her house, and I spent a lot of time with her when I was growing up, and I feel like I saw every episode of Murder, She Wrote there was. And then on top of that, she was also in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which I feel like is kind of an under the radar Disney movie. If you haven't seen it, and I haven't watched it probably as an adult, but that shit was trippy. And she had a little crystal ball. She was just such a badass little witch. And just rest in peace, Angela Lansbury. Like you, you were that bitch for me growing up and you still are. Uh, Rita Ora had her Architectural Digest tour, and I just felt like the Architectural Digest was really gifting us lately. First, we had Emma Chamberlain. I already talked to you guys about how much I loved her house, and I really liked Rita's, too. Rita's is so cool because it used to be owned by this um, old British illustrator who I think was very well off and very well known, and she kept a lot of the original structure to the house. So it kind of has like these almost church-like elements in it, like these really cool dividers, the stained glass. And I I just really loved it. It really spoke to me. It felt like London. She was even saying that. It just She's like, it just feels like an old English home. And I love that they kind of worked the decor around these design elements that were already in the house and they just didn't disrupt that too much. I only had one beef with it, and my my friend Tasha, very loyal listener to the podcast, she pointed this out, and I totally wholeheartedly agreed with her. Her bathroom in her master bathroom, like her bedroom, was only separated from her bed area with a curtain. And I'm sorry, I don't know if that's like old-fashioned of me, but absolutely not. Like, I kind of like the idea of having a bathtub in your bedroom, like separated, but the toilet, like... I'm sorry. No, the t- the toilet needs to be sequestered off. Like I want that nowhere near my bed. Convenience purposes, amazing. Love it. Like you could just stumble out of bed in the middle of the night and barely even worry about stubbing your toe because it's just like two feet away. But that's where the goodness of it stops. 
Okay, and then for the news, I was probably most excited about this week because I didn't even know this was happening. All of a sudden, I was just looking at my Netflix. Honestly, I was looking it up to like download some things to watch on the plane to go to North Carolina this weekend, and I saw The Mole, and it was the very top of the page, and I was thinking, it cannot be. It cannot be a reboot of one of my favorite reality shows of all time. And it is. It is. This is the reality show. I used to talk to Kenzie about it all the time. Like, you don't remember The Mole? The Mole was everything. It was the best show on reality TV. It was just, it didn't exist long enough. Okay, and actually, I just looked it up, and it lasted way longer than I thought. It was on ABC from 2001 to 2008, but what happened was it was originally produced by one company, and then it was canceled, and then it was picked up after a four-year hiatus, so I don't think I actually watched the second iteration of it after the hiatus. But the very first season, I mean... I was I was in deep. I was like, this is the best show to ever exist. It has elements of Survivor because of kind of the social aspect and like doing little tasks and games. But it also has this like mafia side if you've ever played that game at like in around a campfire or something where you're trying to figure out who the mole is. So it's back on Netflix after a 14 year hiatus and it I've only watched the first episode, but the nostalgia, it was everything to me, bringing me back. And honestly, it's just a great concept. And I haven't finished it. And they only released, I think, four episodes so far. And they're kind of doing like the circle where they release them, you know, in time. But I'm into it so far. And I just had to let you guys immediately know because I know there has to be at least one other person listening to this who remembers how freaking good the first season was. Anderson Cooper hosted it. He makes an amazing reality host. I would love to see him in more nowadays. But now to get on to the most exciting news, in the most serendipitous timing of all time, we have an update on The Watcher. And with that being said, let's get into our first article of the day. So our update comes from none other than Reeves Weidman, who wrote the first article, the one that came out four years ago, but that we discussed on last week's episode. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back, listen to that one, because otherwise this will not make a lot of sense. You need the context of the whole story. And as a reminder, Netflix is coming out with the show. It's starring Naomi Watts and Bobby Cannaval. It debuts tomorrow. So again, we don't know how many creative liberties were taken with the actual story i feel like there has to be kind of a lot because while it's a very interesting story i would think certain things have to be changed because you know the bratis has never actually lived in the house for any extended period of time and i would think for this story to work and kind of have like mystery and intrigue we need to see the bratis in the house being freaked out you know so that's kind of like my one prediction that they're gonna have to change elements such as that let's get into the article it's called Taking another look at The Watcher, what we know about the case four years later. And again, it's by Reeves Weideman. So the first question that he's addressing is what actually happened to the house. So in March 2019, which is five years after the Broadduses originally bought the house for $1.35 million, they put it back on the market, trying yet again to sell it, and at a pretty steep discount. This time they listed it for just... Um, a little bit short of a million at 999000 And the description for it says, Endless character and features in this one-of-a-kind home. Must be seen in person. And really what they were hoping for, and this was hinted at in the earlier story, is for a builder to just come in, take it, tear the house down, and kind of be done with this whole horror story behind it. But instead, a young family in the town agreed to buy it, and they purchased it for nine hundred and fifty-nine k, which was a loss of about four hundred k. 
Um, and that's not even including, you know, the agent's cuts and everything they had paid in property taxes, which were apparently $100,000. Guys, I pay like $1,200 a year in property taxes. So I'm shook that it is that much. And for anyone who thinks that all of this was like a money grab, uh, Derek Braddis, who was the dad in the story we talked about last week, he showed the author Reeves his 60th mortgage payment he had made on this house that his family never lived in. And it was in the amount of roughly $5,500. And so when the sale finally closed, the Braddises asked their real estate attorney to give a note to the new owners that said, we wish you nothing but the peace and quiet that we once dreamed of in this house, which is kind of ominous, but like, I guess also kind of sweet and they also attached a photograph of the watcher's handwriting so that the new people who lived in the house would recognize it if it ever showed up in case like he went by a different name or something like that they would recognize the handwriting but but as far as we know the new owners of the house have not received any letters from the watcher as to whether there's been any developments in the case, um, it's kind of a mixed bag on this. So the mayor of Westfield back years ago said that the police's investigation was exhausted, that it left no stone unturned. But obviously a lot of people disagree considering they didn't even talk to all of the direct neighbors of the Broadduses. And another little twist in the story is that back in 2018, the chief of police retired and it says it was due to several unrelated scandals. So I clicked on the link and It was definitely unrelated scandals, but all of the scandals kind of had to do with the chief of police looking out for his own, you know, like cops getting into uh, hit and runs and not reporting it and him just kind of letting it slide. It was stories like that, which kind of leads me and a lot of people to believe that maybe the police know more about this case than they're letting on and maybe they're trying to protect someone in this or that they just don't want to deal with it. Who knows? And again, as you will realize as we get to the end of this, um, we probably never will know. And not to to let your hopes down right now, but to this day, they still do not know who wrote these letters. But one of the police officers who investigated this case or reinvestigated it after the initial investigation, he said the Westfield Police Department fucked these people's cases up. And I was like, damn, he really went in. And he's even he's not even anonymous. He's named in this article. So eventually the case was turned over to the prosecutor's office and they kind of started the investigation from scratch. And uh, the former chief of detectives for the prosecutor's office told Rees that this is normally not the kind of case that the prosecutors would be involved in. He's like, you know, our latest homicide, narcotics, financial crimes, not this stalking stuff. Uh, But he did say, you know, they had put significant resources into investigating it but they didn't really have any fresh evidence or new leads and because of that they had pretty much just stopped working on the case but after the cut published their initial article back in 2018 the prosecutor's office actually decided to try one more idea which how this wasn't thought of in the first (laughs) investigation of this case i'm a little dumbfounded about like when they talked about getting dna off the envelope i thought they had gotten it from the flap so they did subsequent DNA analysis that the letter was licked shut by a woman. Again, I figured that would have been done the first time around, but I guess they were just brushing for fingertips and stuff like that. 
And so once they had the DNA from the little lick flap on the letter, they went back to the neighborhood and they asked people to voluntarily submit DNA samples. And honestly, I'm kind of shocked like anyone did that. And of course, a lot of the assholes were like, absolutely not. But I kind of get that. Like, I would want to help, obviously, and I'd want to help the Broadduses, and I would want to solve this crime. But I'm one of those people who like, I've never had a 23 in me because I'm weirded out about giving out my DNA. And I don't know if that's really like conspiracy minded of me or a little bit out there and crazy. I don't know. I just, I don't feel comfy doing it, you know? And if anyone should do it, it is me considering like, I don't even know my biological dad. Like, I mean, I know who he is, but like, I don't know him personally. So I feel like, you know, I probably have a lot to learn through a DNA test. Anyway, back to the prosecutors. So the prosecutors go to the Broadduses and they tell them, you know, the neighbors were pretty much cooperative because none of them wanted to appear suspicious but unfortunately none of the swabbed dna matches the sample from the envelope and so the broadest is like they were begging to know more they're like you know how many people were given samples who's been ruled out um you know people on the block have said they weren't even home during this canvas by the prosecutors so they didn't even get swabbed they knew that two people refused to have their cheeks swabbed and one of those was a close neighbor of 67 boulevard which is the house and one of them was even a person who the police had initially considered as a suspect. But the prosecutors were like, nah, we're not we're not going to give you any more like that. That's all you're getting. So the Broadduses pitched one more idea. And going back to 23andMe, they pitched the idea of forensic genealogy. And so obviously this is the idea that, you know, millions of people have uploaded their DNA to get, as Reeves writes, genetic and ancestral enlightenment. And... It's also been used recently to find criminals. And I would be lying if there wasn't a small part of me that's just like, what if? What if someday I get like wrongfully accused of a crime? I, I just do not need my DNA in the system like fucking shit up and getting point- fingers pointed at me. I-, I just I don't need that. I don't know if I could sleep well at night knowing that was a possibility. <laughs> um, you know, that being said, like my fingerprints are definitely on file in multiple places. I've gotten fingerprinted to become a lawyer. I'm trying to get my realtor's license. You know, my, my fingerprints are all out there. Um, so it says that some researchers believe that roughly 90% of Americans of European descent can now be identified based on DNA uploaded to these databases, which is insane because that's the thing is that even if you don't give your dna part of the ways they figure this out is that they can just track your relatives so closely if they have a sample of you know the criminal's dna and it really it is kind of crazy that they can pinpoint it so closely because of this and as the article pointed out and i just sort of touched on it's increasingly being used in cold cases and kind of reopening these things that people thought there was no hope in them ever being solved and derek bradis had actually connected with a company that was willing to take a look at the case if the prosecutors would share the dna but the prosecutors again were like mm, nah you know the office has never used that technology before so they couldn't justify doing it for a family that just received a few threatening letters when it had unsolved murders and rapes to deal with again it's like i get it but this this family like they're willing to payroll this like they just want you to turn over the evidence and that's to me is when this gets a little bit murky and sus because it's really no harm no foul on the prosecutor's part to be like you know what sure you want to put up the money for that go off go do your thing so i'm again puzzled by that it sort of makes it seem like they are covering something up which is probably not the case at all but it just it becomes suspicious you know 
So in an email that Derek wrote to Reeves, he was just like, we lose again. I think he's feeling quite dejected at this point, as I'm sure many people are who are following this case. And they reached out to the prosecutor's office for a comment, but they declined to comment, um, saying that while the investigation isn't active, it also isn't closed as their reasoning why they didn't want to speak on it. So the next question that Rees looked into was anyone mad about the DNA roundup? And apparently at least one person was because an anonymous writer sent an email to several local. And this is how it reads. It says, what gives the authority to the prosecutor's office to go door to door and demand DNA samples of residents without a warrant or judge's order? And the author identified himself as Malcolm Mannix. It went on to say, even if the watcher is caught, what laws will they be charged with and what jail time will they really face? Is this the best use of the prosecutor's resources? And in, in this Malcolm Mannix's opinion, he thought the best use of their resources was, quote, pursuing illegal aliens. So clearly this person seems like a real winner. I hope you can detect the sarcasm. Um, anyways, this clearly was like a made up nom de plume if you will and they tried to kind of look at hints of who this could be but still it didn't really give them anything other than making them realize that this person probably had a working knowledge of 60s pop culture because there was a tv show called Mannix that aired in the 1960s and this kind of is in line with what people had previously thought that this person was a little bit older based on like the salutations that they put on the outside of the letter but they tried tracking down this email and they bounced back. But again, this is also so sus to me. Like you couldn't get a forensic, a digital forensic analyst in there to see what IP address this email came from. That's like rudimentary shit. Like we couldn't do that. Uh, again, it, it blows my mind a little bit. And it says the next question that Reeves looked into, is there any new evidence? So this actually isn't new evidence, but it's something that hasn't been published before. And in the article, you can go look at it on the cut site, of course, linked in the show notes. There's a picture of what the watcher's handwriting looks like because we get to see the outside envelope of the letter that was sent. And my very first like gut reaction when I saw the handwriting was, oh, this is 1000% someone writing with their non-dominant hand. And I'd even wager that the person is left-handed because left-handed people tend to be able to write better with their non-dominant hand than right-handed people. I can vouch this because Kenzie is left-handed. You're about to chime in here. <laughs> You're agreeing with me. Yes. Um, you know, because I think they're just used to having to be a little bit more ambidextrous than our little privileged righties are. And when I looked at the comments, someone said the same thing, that it definitely looks like it's written with someone's non-dominant hand. Like, you can just tell that that's what's going on. Um, okay, next thing he looked into is if there's any fresh leads. Now, he, they go into a couple of things, and obviously this has all gone wild on the internet, and especially it's been kind of reignited with this TV show coming out. But the most interesting theory that Reeves saw was about a local teacher, and it was this man named Robert Kaplow, and he taught English at a nearby high school called Summit High School. It was two towns over from Westfield, which is where this house was, where this all went down. He had taught there for 33 years, and he was also a writer, and he had like little short comic bits he performed on NPR under the name Mo Moskowitz. And I thought that was interesting because that matches the double M that we saw in the, the recently written email. And he had a novel that he wrote. It was called Me and Orson Welles. And it was actually later adapted into a movie. 
And the novel itself is actually filled with a ton of references to Westfield, again, the town where this all went down. And it's where he grew up back in the 1960s. So there's kind of a lot of things with him that fit into all the things that match up with this, you know? This is where it gets even weirder. Apparently over the years, he would tell a story to his students. And now they're kind of like, hmm, okay, that's a little curious. So the story was about a house in Westfield that this teacher, Mr. Kaplow, was obsessed with. And he had this idea to start writing letters to the house. Not the occupants, but to the house, a former student said. And another student said that Kaplow had sent more than 50 letters to the house in question. So again, very odd connections. And on top of that, Kaplow retired in 2014, finished his final semester of teaching in June, which was the same exact month that the Watchers started sending letters to the Broadduses. And his he had moved out of Westfield, but his brother Richard was still there and lived only a half block away from 657. On top of that, like, again, these connections are so crazy. And I know this can just happen in a small town. But again, it's very intertwined because his brother was an attorney. And when the Broadduses sued the Woods family, and if you recall, the Woods were the ones who sold the house to the Broadduses. The Woods were represented by Richard Kaplow, i.e. the brother of this teacher. So <laughs> Robert... um answered you know questions about this whole rumor mill and he said there's nothing there but he was familiar with the accusation because he had read it on wikipedia like people kept editing it to say all of this evidence about Kaplow. and then there was this whole editing war on wikipedia because it was removed as defamatory and then it was reinserted and deleted and reasserted yada 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 that kept going on and <laughs> Again, Kapla denies that he is the one who sent the letters, but he did admit that he had written several letters to a house in Westfield, just like his students had recalled. It just wasn't 657 Boulevard. He said it was a Victorian on the north side of town and that the letters were admiring and not threatening. And he even befriended the family who lived there. So they let him house sit the house once, which I hope that's all this man did. Like, it's still a little creepy and weird, but way less ominous than what the watcher was saying about you know the young blood and very threatening towards the children in my mind so next question reeves addresses is who is the watcher and again this is really giving us like nothing it's all the things we've already probably decided on just from reading the article that the watcher probably lived near 657 they were probably older um and that's about it (laughs) And honestly, a lot of the early suspects have died since this all first went down because they were elderly. So Reeves then addresses how's the family doing. And, you know, Derek, who I felt like was very, you could see how wrapped up in this he was just from reading the last article. And he admits to still having a hard time getting over his obsession with the case and everything it did to their lives. He says, I had just turned 40 when we bought the house. I'm now 93 years old, which is clearly a joke, but I think he just feels like he's really been through the trenches on all of this. And honestly, he has. 
So a lot of people are wondering if the Netflix show made them rich. And a lot of people in Westfield apparently believe that the Broadus has made a killing by giving Netflix the right to adapt their story. People heard that it was, you know, $10 million that they were offered. But in reality, the money that they got from Netflix didn't even cover their losses on the house, which is still a lot, obviously, because they lost a lot of money in the house. So they probably got, I would say, to cover the losses, they had to have gotten upwards of like, six hundred seven hundred thousand dollars but still you know not 10 million and in 2018 right after the article was written tons of film and tv producers were interested in adapting the article and the broadest's life story there was even a horror producer who offered to buy the house because he wanted to use it as a set but the broadest's were just like not down with that they're like we don't want someone to make entertainment of literally what were the worst years of our lives but then what happened is lifetime ended up making a movie that you know took enough artistic license that the Broadduses couldn't stop it from coming out. So I think kind of after they saw their story taken advantage of in that way, they were like, you know, we want to at least have some little bit of control over it. And they felt like they could do that with Netflix. So they only had two requests and one suggestion to the production team. They asked that the show not use their name and that the on-screen family look as little like theirs as possible. And I actually don't know what the Broadduses look like, but I guess in the movie, they have two kids rather than three kids, which doesn't really seem like that big of a change, but okay. And they also said they would not mind if the fictional house burned to the ground. So that might be like kind of a spoiler about what we're going to see in the show. It might just be lit on fire. Um, the Broadduses have not seen the show and they don't plan on watching it. At least Derek doesn't. He says the trailer was stressful enough. So when Reese addresses the question of if there's any chance of solving the case, at this point, he thinks there's only two possibilities, which would either be a confession or a DNA match. And the Broadduses say that their offer to pay for the forensic genealogy still stands. Like, they are still down to do that. And if there's one thing we've learned about Netflix and true crime over the years, it's the power that a story being exposed to a massive amount of people can have. Literally, I mean, just this week, we saw the release of Adnan Sayed, who was the focus of Serial, you know, one of the very first true crime podcast to really pop off so many years ago at this point and he's been in jail for so many years and then you know being a murderer we had the same sort of public frenzy call to action over that so my prediction is that when the show comes out more and more people are going to read the cut article want to know what really happened because that's always what happens when something's based on a true story and I totally can see the prosecutors being willing to maybe even pay pay for the forensic genealogy themselves because it's not I don't even think it's that expensive maybe it's different when you're doing this forensic side of it but obviously it's not very expensive to you know do a 23 and me and considering they actually have the DNA from the flap of the letter I think this can be solved pretty quickly even if the people are deceased they're definitely going to be able to narrow it down to a family and I think this chapter will be finally closed for this family I'm happy that they were able to sell the house and no longer had to keep renting it I do think it's kind of funny that they still live in Westfield you know obviously right after they realized they couldn't live in that house they they stayed close by I kind of feel like with something that traumatic you'd almost want to be in an area where no one knew your name no one knew your backstory 
But again, I mean, the wife grew up there. It's where she loved. It's where she wanted to live. So I see both sides of it. Let me know if you're watching the show tomorrow when it comes out. I'm so backed up on good TV, guys. Like there is so much out right now I want to watch. I feel like I'm drowning. Like there's just simply not enough time for my eyeballs to be on all of it. Guys, I swear we will get back to more like light pop culture next week. But I just had to give you the wrap up of this story. And the other stuff just wasn't really interesting to me that much. Like, we have Emily Ratajkowski starting a podcast. Uh, again, another celebrity starting a podcast. I mean, I think she's great. Like, good for her. I'm just like, damn, can, can a gal just have a podcast who's not a celebrity and do something with it? And then there was a whole article about Anna Sorkin, a.k.a. Anna Delvey, finally getting released from ice and now she's just back like with her little ankle strap on living her life and her little you know walk up and I I think the East Village or something I'm like damn she's living my dream with her ankle strap I mean I could do without the ankle strap but she was looking pretty chic like they had pictures of her she was all in black like she continues to just somehow evade everything um, but obviously she's going to be under close watch and I don't know how long she'll successfully be able to stay in the U.S. but we shall see, I suppose. So we've made it to our legit shit for the day. I think I might have honestly included this in another episode because I think I was asking Kenzie for like what her legit shit was and I think she talked about these or told me to talk about them. But now I've bought them myself and I can honestly say they are amazing because I've worn them multiple times at this point. And this is the Nippy Nipple Covers by B6. Y'all, I've tried a lot of nipple covers. And I've gone through a lot of nipple covers. And usually they're ones I go buy at the CVS because they carry, it's like the Hollywood ones or whatever. I'll get them from Target. Like I've gotten them from multiple places, but I tend to get the ones I can get at CVS because it's usually like in a panic that I'm realizing none of mine are sticky anymore and I really need a new pair. And those cost like 14 bucks. Like they're not that cheap. And obviously these ones cost a little bit more. They're like 20 something. But the quality is so much better. They come in this nice storage case. The bi- I have the bigger sized ones, like bigger diameter. And they don't give you like that pepperoni nipple look. You know, no one wants pepperoni nipple look unless you do. I don't want that. Uh, so I really recommend the larger size if you want a little bit more coverage or if you don't have like a very petite boobie. Um, please try them out. And let me know if you agree, if you're in the on the market for you know, a new pair, or if you've just been struggling with me that you go through these ones that lose their sticky so quick. These are legit sticky and you can just give them a little wash and like a little dish soap and let them dry and then put them back in their case. And I, I would wash my other ones too, but I'm telling you guys, like the more you wash them, the faster they lost their sticky. And I'm telling you, I've learned these multiple times at this point and I'm not noticing much of a diminishing stickiness. So just keep that in mind. Um, Sorry to give you whiplash from going talking about a creepy watcher to nipple covers, but you know, they both serve something. I hope you enjoyed this little truncated episode and I will see you next week. Bye.